0: so often throughout the course of history patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom these people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom the call has been sounded will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy america's freedom you're listening to the disciples of liberty radio show on the america out loud network now here's your host tim alders
1: Hi, welcome back to the revolution. The revolutions of your hearts, your minds, your soul. Are you going to get involved and pay attention to what's happening in your nation? Or are you just going to sit idly back and let people that you elected ignore you, your thoughts, your process? Today, we got an amazing show. We have Michelle Black is a mother of two boys, a gold star wife and an author. She was the first woman in her family to graduate high school. She attended California Polytechnic State University, where she graduated with a degree in environmental sciences and horticulture. She has a passion for writing, and she's been published in the New York Times. Um, She lives in Washington State. So, Michelle, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
1: Hey, no problem. Been doing this a lot of years. It's always fun when I interview authors and people with a passion to explore the truth. See, I believe in truth. I believe we all need transparency and we all need truth. Before we go on to your book, Sacrifice, and Michelle is the author of a book called Sacrifice. You'll be able to find it in the bookstore at AmericaOutloud.com. We'll put that up later. Um, But Michelle has a unique story we'll get to. First off, we have to address President Zelensky of Ukraine addressed our Congress, and he asked for a no-fly zone. Now, I have already spoken that a no-fly zone, in order to um, actually put one in place, you have to be willing to fire upon Russian helicopters, Russian planes, and actually most of the bombardment that is happening in the Ukraine is happening happening from ground artillery. Putin would love nothing more than America to send troops over there to send planes and to basically have us declare war on, on the people of Russia. Now, I my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine. The people of Ukraine are good people. America, NATO, the United Nations have let them down. It started in 2014 when we ousted uh, the president to put in this this Zelensky guy. And it is a corrupt government. You can compare it to Putin. Putin's corrupt. China's corrupt. There's a lot of corrupt governments out there. But the people are suffering. And there is humanitarian aid needed. But we can't even do a limited no-fly zone and protect evacuation corridors because we'd still have to fire upon Russian helicopters and planes and is America after I'm going to say this as direct as I can after the failed um, war on terror and I say the failed war on terror because our sons and daughters our husbands and wives our military did everything they were asked to do they went there they fought they sacrificed and uh, we were getting a Pretty decent control on it. It lasted way too long, cost us way too much money. And then all of a sudden, our current administration announces a withdrawal and lets them know we're withdrawing, leaves $80 billion in weaponry behind to build back up the hatred for America. And we lost 13 people, um, sons and daughters, uh, because we telegraphed what we were doing. And we shouldn't telegraph what's going on in the military. But my problems with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the generals – Because they swear an oath to protect and uphold the Constitution. And if they get a bad order from a president, they should just say no. No, we're not going to do the withdrawal the way you want to because it's dangerous. And... They did it anyway, and it cost people their lives. So, Michelle, before we start off on your book, I just would like your take, because you you were just telling me prior to the show that you actually helped with an orphanage and and understand the people of the Ukraine, and I'm sure your heart goes out to them just like mine and the rest of the listeners, but how much involvement do you think America should have?
2: I mean, as I was telling you before, my my opinion runs very similar to yours. I, I, you know... My heart is just broken over the people. And I wish there was some way we could make it so that just the soldiers in Ukraine were fighting Russia. Um, but that's that's not possible. So my heart is broken for the people, especially those I got to know while I was there. But it is a very corrupt government. And um, we don't need to be involved in policing the world once again. And we don't need to, you know, our greatest asset is you know, human lives. And when we send our own military over there, it costs lives. And I don't think that's something any of us in the military world are in a hurry to jump into.
1: You know, it's interesting to me that we live in the year 2022 now. And we still have governments wanting to conquer other lands. They're just not satisfied with what they have. And if one thing the Ukraine has taught me as a radio host, what I've been, you know, trumpeting about for years is the founding fathers intended us to be a self-sufficient nation, to take care of our own energy production, our own food production, you know, our, our own resources. And we aren't self-sufficient in any way, manufacturing, food, energy, uh, we're dependent upon nations who we are now declaring as enemies. And it's just insane to me that when we have the resources here in America that we don't utilize those resources. But that's just me, you know, I can tell and and sound this uh, call of action out all the time. I preach to the choir, to most of the listeners. Um, so you are a gold star widow, Let's start there. What is a gold star widow? It's, it's, and, and first off, let me thank you for the sacrifice of you and your family. And uh, my heart goes out to you and your boys for what happened. And we'll get to what happened so everybody knows. But uh, thank you for your service because people don't understand that when our sons, daughters, husbands, wives go into service, that there is a, a big family here that don't get to see them. They don't get to see, sometimes see their children's first steps. They miss a lot of events that we get to watch because they're there. So thank you so much for your service.
2: Absolutely. And thank you for recognizing that. You know, that that's something that a lot of people don't realize. Um, a gold star widow or any gold star family member is somebody who lost a family member in service to this country. So um, I'm a gold star widow because my husband, Brian, was killed in action overseas um, in 2017.
1: Now, your husband's name was Brian. Brian was a Green Beret, um, and he was serving um, in Ni- Nigeria at the time, right? In 2017. Um, yes. Yes. The media, the public focused on, you know, our former President Trump's uh, condolence call to one of the widows. But the the problem when we have husbands and sons serve and they get caught up in some kind of a conflict, um, all you guys want is the truth. But the military seems to not want anybody to have the truth of what's going on and, and what happened. So detail a little bit. Uh, first let's, how did you and Brian meet?
2: Um, Brian and I met in a ski town. We actually, I had just finished college and he had just finished college. Ironically, he was a lot smarter than me. So of course he finished college at 20 years old and I finished around 23. (laughs) So, um, he was actually about four years younger than me. I'd t- taken, decided to take two years off. So I was in my second year off of life, I guess, um, teaching snowboarding and having fun when he walked into my church. And uh, we did these spaghetti feed nights and uh, he just was a complete misfit in the ski bum crowd. So everyone's, you know, fur lined jackets and saggy pants. And Brian was uh, was a former um cage fighter and MMA, really into MMA. And so he was just big and wearing a tight sweater and jeans. And I thought this is a very odd guy. He looked like he should have, you know, two black eyes and missing teeth. He just looked like a fighter. And uh, of course he was. Um, so that's how we met. He actually dated a coworker of mine for about a year before he and I started hanging out. And within a few months we were engaged. Um,
1: See, I don't know if he was smarter than you because you were able to, uh, get this man to fall in love with you. And, and, uh, it's a great story though. It's a great story. I love it when people meet at an unusual, unusual place and, Fall in love, so so that that's amazing. So, how long had your husband Brian been in the military and a member of the Green Beret? You have to understand, the Green Beret are among the elite. I, I love the movie The Green Berets. I love the song they sang growing up. Uh, yeah. You know, these are the men, and it's just they're one tough group. They're not, uh, you know, wimps. They are they are not afraid of much of anything. I'd hate to meet one angry in a bar or restaurant someday but uh so how long had brian been in the military
2: um he had gone in in 2009 and uh let's see we we spent a couple years just with him in um a regular unit a a medical unit um in colorado when he decided to go to sfas which is special forces selection and that was in i want to say 2011 and when he was accepted we moved back to Fort Bragg where all the training takes place in 2012 and it took about 3 years because he had to learn Arabic he had to he was selected as a medical sergeant so that takes extensive training and touring in hospitals etc um, so he worked in ERs, he worked with veter- vets because he had to learn, you know, how to, uh, veterinarians, he had to learn how to, um, provide services to both animals and humans when he was overseas. And so it was a very extensive training program. He graduated in 2015, um, to become a green beret. And it's funny because, um, it was very powerful when he graduated in the ceremony, when the men first doned the green beret, they actually sing the ballad of the green beret. And uh, that was a very emotional moment for me, you know, to hear that.
1: Yeah. Like I said, that's been one of my favorite ballads since I was a young child uh, watching that. So my parents uh, came over from Holland Um, after World War II. So it was uh, American troops who uh, uh, freed my parents when they were younger from work camps from the Germans. So it it was really neat. So my dad always had a deep respect for the U.S. military. So this is your first book, Sacrifice. And it had to be gut-wrenching to write this story. Uh, You relived a lot of... Uh, how you met Brian, your lives before the military, your lives during and then the tragic end. Um, Why don't you tell the listeners what the book's about a little bit in your own words?
2: So a lot of times I just, I start with the fact that it is a book about justice. A lot of people look at the cover and they think this is a book about grief and loss and it's not. It's a book about justice. It really is an American story because we that's one thing I think in America we love freedom, truth and justice. And we we demand it at every turn. And you know, when my husband was killed overseas, he was killed with three other American men. And it turned into a huge um, national news story because it was the largest loss of life on the continent of Africa since the Battle of Mogadishu, which we know is Black Hawk Down. And instantly it was everywhere. And, you know, like you said, there was Trump's phone call. Um, He was great to my family. And and then there was news that he wasn't so great to another family. And so then we had people knocking on our doors, wanting comments, when really we just wanted to grieve and obviously I wasn't on her phone call. So I don't know why they expected I, I would speak to that. Um, so we we had that going on. And then while my husband was on the ground, National Geographic had actually been um, filming um, a, a chain of command series on his team. And so that came out. Meanwhile, there's an investigation into the incident by AFRICOM, who is telling us that they were just on a routine patrol, which made no sense why they would be on a routine patrol that lasted three days. None of their missions ever lasted more than a day. And so we were told they were on a routine patrol when they were just ambushed. Um, So... Then the media began to come out and say the team had acted like a bunch of cowboys and gone rogue trying to hunt down a high value target terrorist. Which, if you know these teams and I knew my husband, they don't go rogue. So, this didn't sit right with me. But we believed that eventually the military would, you know, line out the truth, give us a detailed timeline of events on the ground. And let us know what really happened. I didn't believe that these leaks, the, the media was claiming they were being leaked to by um, people involved in the investigation. I didn't believe that these, these things were true.
1: Um, then let, Let's back up for one minute, Michelle, because, you know, everybody in 2017 knew what was going on in Afghanistan. They knew what was going on in the Middle East. Most people didn't even understand that we had troops in Africa, in Nigeria. So how many troops, do you know how many troops were in Nigeria at the time?
2: Well, you know, the difference is when, when you're talking special operators, like a green beret team, it's not that we're necessarily in Africa, right? So we've got a 12 man team with a support. They're literally living in connex boxes out in the desert that have been dropped onto a semi-secure base.
1: So, right. so, so you have to understand when we drop special forces somewhere, they're pre any large ground mobilization. So they drop these people from parachute from planes. They drop what she's talking about. Connex boxes are like these big storage boxes. It, it has, you know, some rations for them. It's not the best food. It has supplies for conflict. It, it has the basic necessities they need to live to carry out their mission. And then they will. X-fill these people out when their mission's complete by helicopter and just leave this Connex box and other stuff behind. So so he was on a team of four. Were there other Green Berets in Nigeria at the time? He
2: was on a team of 12. So the average Green Beret team is is composed of 12 people. So they'll have a lead medic um, and then a junior medic, and then they'll have a communications guy, a couple of weapons guys, a couple of um, explosives guys. Um, so, so they've got a whole mix of people, intelligence guy. So just some, each guy has their field that they've specialized in and each of them has their language that they've specialized in. So speaking French, speaking a local dialect, speaking Brian spoke um Arabic, but he also taught himself the local dialect of Hausa as well as French. So um, that way he could work across the continent and, and be um useful. Um, especially since he was doing medical care. He needed to you know be able to speak well enough to communicate with someone who was injured. Um, because they would provide medical care to the locals. So, um, but yeah, they would drop the Connex boxes, which are essentially, you know, the big metal things that you see um, containers being carried on trains across the nation. So those, that's basically a Connex box. And um, so, and, and, you know, they always say Green Berets first in last out. So before any conflict, and as we finish up any conflict, you're going to find Green Beret teams on the ground. So they are in the most places on earth. Um, just doing, you know, different things from reconnaissance to training local troops to protect their, um, their land or their territory. And so if we have an ally, which Niger was an ally, they ask us, Hey, we've got growing, a growing threat of violent extremism on the border. And, um, you know, your goal is to combat terrorism, right? And we're getting, we're seeing a lot of terrorism, um, moving into our area will you come help train our troops to protect to protect our borders so our goal at that time in niger was to go in and um advise and assist to train their troops so their their troops would go ahead into every um on every mission it was it was the Nigerians' mission. So the the Nigerians would go first. They would have the final call on whether we did or did not do certain missions. They could push back against them, um, even if we decided that we were going to do them. So anyway, so that's generally what we were doing there. So while people would say, why are we even in Africa? We shouldn't be there. Well, when you have an ally, you try and support them the best you can. And, And it was there, it really wasn't a risky place to be at the time. We were just there training them. What, Where the problem occurred was the way this mission was done and the lack of support given to the team by those higher up the chain when they sent my husband's team. This whole situation should have never happened. Um, and that's the issue.
1: Okay. So- I want people to understand our military is in a lot more places than you probably realize. Maybe not in large forces, maybe not, you know, just a regular army, but we do train a lot of allied forces. A lot of people do not have the special skills training that the American military has. And so we do provide training to other people. That's sort of what the problem was in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, we... We created the enemy over there. We we helped train them under Saddam Hussein. We helped train them under Gaddafi. You know, at one point, we viewed those people as our allies. So we trained them in the way we operate. And then we ended up having to fight them, knowing how a lot of our training is. So you always knew that... Brian chose a risky path in the military. He could have stuck with what he was doing prior to 2011 and had a, a lot safer path, but he was passionate. He, he was passionate about, um, serving and honoring the constitution. So he went on this mission and what was the narrative you were told? Um, you, you know, you only get, uh, specks of the truth let, let, let's realize if the military don't want to tell you something they're not going to tell you but what was told to you about what happened on this mission
2: so i'm going to go back to where i left off which is we were hearing all sorts of things rogue team and we were told that it all had to do with a conop or a concept of operations report that's what was in the was in the media and so this concept of operations report that the team captain put out before they left on the mission, that was supposed to be responsible and, and the proof of everything. Um, and one thing I'd like to bring up also is as we waited for this um, for this report to come out, for, for the investigation to be finished, there was also head cam footage that surfaced. And CBS News decided to put it out. There was a headcam vid- video that was stolen off the body of one of the men killed. ISIS stole it and made a um, terrorist propaganda video. And then the only news outlet that would touch it was CBS, who um, put it out on YouTube and, you know, released it essentially. And now that video continues to show um, everywhere. It's been grabbed and just put out on all forms of social media since that time. And in it, you see the deaths of my husband, Jeremiah and Dustin, three of the um, three of three out of four of the other men killed. And this has been, you know, to me, so unacceptable. Um, I had, you know, kids. My boys were nine and eleven at the time. Jeremiah had teenagers, so they all saw it. It just, it to me is mind bogg- boggling, and it, it's still everywhere today. You, you um, know what's so- hard
1: about that is America created the internet. America has some of the most intelligent people. We could block videos like this from ever existing. I I don't understand why the American government allows propaganda from ISIS or other terrorist groups like this, showing the deaths of brave men and women uh, to recruit others to their cause because they manipulate it. And we have the ability to shut it down. Have you guys ever asked for them to stop these? Oh, of
2: course. You know, and and that's that's the bigger problem I see as well, is that we have um, what has been going on over the past, what, two years, which is the social media sites are going out of their way to block all sorts of content, right, and say that it's a threat, it's a risk, but and, and then out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying, you know, we support PTSD. We, we you know, support PTS and, and veterans and, you know, we want to prevent suicide. And then they show these videos and they won't remove them from their sites. I mean, CBS still has up the original um, uh, report they did using the video. And even if it's just a clip of my husband's body being drugged through the dirt where you don't really see the injuries, I mean, My mother-in-law still knows that's her son's body and the men who worked beside him um, that day. I mean, that's a flashback for them instantly. And, you know, so if we really care about our veterans, we really care about our gold star families. We really care about suicide and suicide prevention, PTS. Why are we showing these and why is this less of a threat um, than a dumb tweet? You know, no one... You know, no one is really led to violence by a tweet, but here we are watching violence and people replaying it. And the only people who watch these kind of sick videos over and over and over are those who really are prone to some serious violence. So, so why social, is that
1: being played? I don't know. Sociopaths. We're going to take a break real quick. Uh, we are with Michelle Black. You can find her at michelleblacksacrifice.com. You'll be able to find the book Sacrifice on our bookstore. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty. I bring shows like this to you folks because you need to hear the other side of the story, not the mainstream media's version, not social media's version. This is straight from the widow of of a man and his friends who sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice for our nation that has been twisted and lost and forgotten so we will be right back Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America loud talk radio. This is McCullough report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider healthy cell. These are pill free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the focus and recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short term focus and long term brain power with healthy cells focus and recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In
0: 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert it's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash outloud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Our invincible American spirit drives the most audacious experiment in the history of self-government. America Out Loud celebrates the American spirit every minute of every day. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all.
1: Right, I am so ready to get back to the show. I'm going to stop the uh, intro for the second half early. You're listening to the Disciples of Liber- Liberty. Thanks for being someone who cares about the Constitution. If you want to help Michelle get her story out there, Michelle Black, the author of Sacrifice, you need to make sure you share her story. Tell people about the book. Tell people about this show and let them listen to her. And And Michelle, we're deep involved in this, so go ahead and uh, you got... Approximately 28 minutes to finish your story.
2: So, um, you know, I'll just start skipping to why I actually wrote the story and, and what the book is about. So when we finally reached the briefing room with investigators we were, where we were certain that we would get the truth, um, instead, we were told a bunch of half-truths and a few outright lies. They were um, somewhat condescending, honestly, and um, at times just, well, the the lead investigating officer was pretty, you know, he was fairly nice and um, I think inadvertently condescending. There was a lawyer in the room who was just outright uh, condescending and rude. Um, there were multiple times where I would ask questions, detailed questions, and I would get a general, Trust us, Smith-Black, you'll see in the end, this is the team's fault. So they followed the same line of reasoning that we had heard in the media, which was, this was the fault of the team. This was the fault of the team captain. But what I did learn was that it was a three-part mission. And there were two more con-ops that followed the first initial con-op and that the team didn't just go on a one day mission, but that they were pushed forward two more times. And when I asked them if the team had pushed back at all, we were told, Oh no, they preferred not to go, but there was no pushback. And I asked them, well, who wrote the other con-ops? Well, those higher up the chain, but those all had proper approvals. And, you know, if the first, first con-op had had the proper approvals, then you know, then we would have known um, what they were really doing and we could have prevented this, which made no sense because if they were cowboys and if they were in such a hurry to go hunt down a terrorist, then why would they prefer not to go on the to follow on missions? So the whole thing didn't add up, but they couldn't give us a detailed timeline or explanation except to blame the team continuously. Um, When I left the briefing room, I had more questions than I had answers. And so I sat on it because I don't tend to be a person who is in a hurry to think I'm wronged. And I thought, surely they're not going to lie to the families, although this feels an awful lot like lies. And um, I figured, well, you know, at this point, as long as we're not punishing the guys on the ground, Because I'm still not seeing what they did that's really worthy of punishment, um, then I'm fine with it, you know. And so when we got uh, the next week, General Waldhauser, who was the commanding general over all of AFRICOM, which is Africa Command, he went on um, in front of all of the country in a media brief and basically did once again blame the team, um, vowed that everyone would be held accountable and punishments would be passed out. And then he went one step further and said that while all teams on the continent were performing optimally, my husband's team was not indicative of what special operators do. So in one fell swoop, he completely um, just dishonored my husband and all the men who fought and died alongside him. And at that point is when I realized that there was only one thing I could do, and that was to find the truth for myself. And the best way to get the truth out after that was to write a book detailing what really did happen and who was really accountable. So following that, I spoke to the men on the team one-on-one. I interviewed them you know, one at a time to make sure that I got the accurate story. And what I found were huge discrepancies between what they said happened on the ground and what I was told by AFRICOM and what the entire country was being told by AFRICOM. And, you know, it it was so hard because as I'm interviewing them and and writing their stories, um, they're receiving go mores and which are punishments um, from their leadership.
1: I have a question for you. Um, This is a question I, I always ask. Different things, because the men in the field, your husband's team has radios to talk Mm -hmm. to command, correct? Yes. From what I understand from people I know in the military, these conversations are recorded on the other end. If they're saying that your husband and his team went cowboy, have they ever let you listen to the recordings?
2: Oh, of course not. And we can't see copies of the con ops either. You know, that's that's
1: irritating for me because if there's no secret national security issue at play here that they were on this mission that they don't want to disclose and they're trying to blame a team, they would actually have the evidence that, hey, the team wasn't answering our radio calls. They were doing this because they don't get rid of those. Uh, They have to have them to reevaluate, to train. Um, And then you interviewed the other guys and they were saying there was pushback from the members on the team. So it it always bothers me when the military or the government has this one narrative, yet they're the only people with the proof to prove their narrative and they refuse. The only reason they would refuse to release these recordings is if they actually prove your point and not theirs is, am I just off boat here thinking?
2: No, that's exactly correct. We should be able to see the con ops. There should be no classified, um, well, I shouldn't say there shouldn't be no, there should be no classified, but there'd be very little classified information within the CONOPS. So they could have easily redacted the CONOPS and let us see them, but they're completely classified, the entire conop, each of the three CONOPS. So we cannot see those. And when we received the redacted report, it was so redacted, it was ridiculous, Um so, I mean, I could look at it after my interviews and say, OK, it says this redacted, this redacted, this redacted. And it was even like the location was redacted, which everybody knew they were attacked in Tongo Tongo. So why would it say that they were ambushed outside redacted? I mean, come on. We were that was, you know, that was everywhere in the news. So there were so many things redacted. It was ridiculous. And then they used so many different versions, like so many different titles for the same person. It was crazy. So um, I kept having to look up and then make notes on, okay, this is actually that same lieutenant colonel just using a different title and throughout the report. Because instead of using his name, it it would be something along the lines of the N.W.A., you know, so Northwest Africa forward commander or whatever. And so you'd be going, who's the NWA forward commander? And then you'd look it up and be like, oh, okay, that's the same guy. Um, So everywhere, it just, it was like they were trying to, you know, just mislead you. And ironically, they put that redacted report out. And then within a year, it disappeared from the internet. So unless you do a FOIA request, you can't get it. So um, I actually put it on my author site, which is michelleblacksacrifice.com. So people can pull it up and look at it. Because fortunately, my family, we saved a PDF version of it. Um, but yeah, and, and when they redacted the report, they, you know, they always, with every investigation, they put a number of years on which the, the redactions are now no longer, you know, whatever, and it's it's available to the public. And um, it's usually not that long. It's usually like 10 years, 15 years. This one had, I believe it was something like 30 years. It was something ridiculous where it made sure to cover the full careers of anybody involved in the incident so that they can't be held accountable, which blows my mind.
1: Not, not only the full careers of the people involved, but the lifespan of the the widows or the family. It's like, we just don't want anybody coming back on us, you know, and people, you might say that we are thinking the worst of our government. Yes, I do, because you can find redacted files from world war one and world war two. And you can see some of the things our military did that was quite brutal and quite not the narrative of the media to get the people, uh, people support during world war two. You know, it was it was amazing when I first read that uh, we didn't need to to launch the uh, nuclear weapons in Japan, but the scientists and the government wanted to test just how deadly they were. So we did the first one and they're like, well, the, the, the air wasn't right. The the Brit, You know, you can read the scientific reports of why they launched the second one. And it's just insane because Japan was already at the table surrendering. Uh, Because they knew the capacity we had, yet we not only did it once, we did it twice, not because we had to, but because we wanted to gauge the effectiveness of our nukes. So, yeah, you can go back and read um, unredacted tales, which most people don't. That's why they unredact them 50, 75 years later, because people aren't alive who actually care. So yeah. what was the worst thing you learned when you were doing your own research? And and I applaud you for doing your own research because you were grieving. You had two sons that all of a sudden you had to care for yourself. Uh, media was attacking, yet you didn't back down and cower in a corner. You you showed that green brave spirit yourself. But what was the worst <laughs> thing you learned?
2: Gosh, the, you know, there are so many when I pull apart the report. Um, there was one part we were told, you know, that they were going up to essentially clear a campsite just to collect intelligence on a, um, known terrorist, but it was, we were told that it was completely empty. There was nobody present and that, um, you know, so that it was safe. So they didn't need backup. They didn't need anybody there with them, even though they were going to a, It very well, it was known to be extremely dangerous up near the border of Mali. Well, what I learned was that not only did they end up going up there alone with absolutely no assets and with their only drone was running out of fuel. So it wasn't going to be able to make it back home with them. And they had traveled through the night and had no sleep. And I found out that the partner force told them, we don't want to do this. This is not what we should do. There have been multiple attacks over the course of the last year. Just, you know, in the months prior, I want to say six to nine months prior to my husband's incident, there had been 15 attacks on military in that area by the same ISIS group of ISIS militants. It just had never happened to Americans. So when they got up there, After traveling through the night in this area with no roads, two motorcycles started up and or no, a motorcycle started up with two terrorists on it and rode off out of the campsite. And um, the drone that was running out of fuel was sent to follow them and they met up with a group on motorcycles out in the middle of the desert and then all those motorcycles um, split up. And I'm assuming that that's what started it.
1: You know, it's interesting. We really haven't learned any lessons since Vietnam. My uh, brother was there as uh, in Vietnam. And uh, the stories and the videos that he shot in Vietnam, it, it was really interesting. And, and I saw in your book how um, villagers were delaying uh, your... Husbands, I don't know. You call them a squad or a team.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: In Vietnam, villagers would, you know, and people wonder why were the villagers supporting these terrorists? Why do they support, you know, the Vietnamese um, enemy at that at that time? And it was like you would have young children walk up to an American base, walk in because you know it wasn't fired unless you fired upon, and they were strapped with with bombs at that time. So this this isn't new. How mm-hmm these people play they've taken their their playbook from what happened in Vietnam because Vietnam was so successful against American troops but we haven't learned um you know and the team from what it my understanding is a book suspected something was going on with these villagers but they had to get orders from higher up saying it it doesn't matter go forward that you know you're imagining things just keep pushing forward you know, their their equipment's not working right. Their drone, they, you know, they can't fly a drone ahead of them to, um, you know, view what's going on if there's ambushes set up or anything. So why did operations keep pushing them forward? Did they ever tell you?
2: No, my my suspicion is that the lieutenant colonel, because this is this is what really got me was he stopped by after he, after the investigation was completed and we'd been briefed for the first time to my house, which was insane to me because it was seven months later. So for the first time, seven months later, the man who ordered the mission showed up to give condolences and he made the excuse that he just, you know, was under investigation. So he couldn't say anything prior to that. Not even, I'm sorry, your husband's dead. So he stopped by and he made an excuse. He said, Well, we'd heard that an American hostage was held up in that area. And so we felt um, we needed to go up there, which if there was an American hostage, my husband's team is not the kind of team that would have been sent in. It would have been the Rangers. It would have been Delta Force. It would have been all sorts of other teams that were close enough and at the ready that they would have been sent in. Also, somebody would have told my husband's team, or the Helleborn unit that was supposed to meet them there. I interviewed the commander of the Helleborn unit that ended up getting canceled. And they laughed when I told them that. They said, there's absolutely no way that we would have been sent in without that knowledge. And it was not told to us that he was there. And they also would not have sent your husband's team or us in there. So that was just a non-starter. So not only did he lie to us, but I believe that... That was something that was in the back of his mind when he ordered the mission and pushed my husband's team ahead. Because if by some off chance they got up to that camp and found proof, because they did suspect that the American hostage had been with that terrorist at some point. So I think he was hoping to get some sort of piece of information or get lucky and happen upon this guy and um, that that would essentially help his career. That's the only um, thing I can imagine that would be worth sending my husband's team up the way they were sent up is that he was hoping to get lucky and he didn't properly. Actually, he didn't even run a second threat assessment or risk assessment to see whether or not it, it, you know, there was any risk to my husband's team.
1: You know, what's interesting is every story I've ever read about hostage rescue in the military or retrieving of soldiers who were taken in the military. I've never seen a team of four. It's always a full team of 12 with support teams. Well, it it
2: was a team of, they had 11 guys out on the ground, their team, and then they had 32 Nigerian counterparts, but they weren't trained properly to carry out that mission. Um, So it would have been, say, a different team of 12, but probably also, like you said, with support, there would have been at, there would have been air support, um, a real solid plan to infill, you know, to
1: Exfil a backup team if they're yeah. needed. There's just so much that goes into that operation. To me, it sounds like, and this is just my opinion, to me, it sounds like somebody who was trying to make a name for himself uh, to, yes. to get recognition. Yeah. And he was hoping that this small team of men could stumble upon something and he could take it to his um commanders and say, look what I found out. You know, look what look what we we discovered. Let's let's now do a proper mission. And yeah. that's, that's just exactly awful. what I felt. Yeah, that that had to be just devastating. How many of the what? the survivors of this team are still serving currently today?
2: Um I wanna say three or four of them are still serving. So yeah.
1: Once they're out as a Green Beret or or special forces, you're you're still under a gag order, right? Uh, You you technically aren't supposed to talk about any of your missions.
2: Yeah, well, this was it was interesting because what they were told, which was fortunate for me, was that they wanted them. They weren't uh, placed under an official gag order. They were told not to speak until the investigation was complete to the family members or anybody about what happened on the ground. Um, Because once the report was out, then they, they would know what was redacted and what was classified and what wasn't. So the minute the report was out, they weren't under any signed agreement or real order not to speak. So then they could speak to me, but normally Green Berets won't speak. So what happened was as as they began to realize they were going to be punished and I came to them and I was like, I still don't know the truth. Please like speak to me and let me tell this story. Let me tell the truth for you guys, for my family and for the other families. Let me know the full truth because at some point the media is going to be coming in here and asking you and that's the same media who destroyed you.
1: You know what I wish people like these men who served on your husband's team that came back would realize is that their oath is to the Constitution. So the Constitution is for the people of this country, not the government of this country. And we can't help demand change and protect these military uh, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, if they don't speak up, does that make sense the The biggest duty they could do and and I wish media would say hey let 's do an interview let 's have all of them in a room with the wives or the widows and and let's let's piece together this story from the mouths of the people who were actually there and involved and not these commanders this is this is this is what uh, and and you're not going to find mainstream media that uh will do something like this. Have you thought about doing a docu-series on this or anything like that?
2: Well, you know, ABC did put out a, a documentary on the incident. The men will not speak on tape with anybody. Um, you know, I asked them when the book comes out, will you go on on camera with me? And, and they basically told me when we're retired, we'll go. But until that time there's two things. They don't want the attention. Green Berets generally are known as the quiet professionals for a reason. They they don't like the attention. They don't want to be on TV. They don't want their face out there. They want to lead quiet lives and be left alone. And while they're operational, they're, they don't want their faces out there for operational security reasons, right? So, um and a lot of them want to go from being a Green Beret to Delta Force. They want to do you know, ha- leave the door open to do more tier one um, jobs. And that means, you know, they need to keep their faces um, off any form of media, social media to avoid, um, right, we have all the facial recognition stuff now. So they can't have their faces out there. So until they retire, they're not interested in speaking um, on camera. And even then it, it would be a stretch. They do it for me, maybe, but I don't think they do it for anyone else. So I don't, you know, I've asked them a few times, but I'm kind of at that point where I, I you know, I, I don't think that's fair for me to even ask them anymore. Um, but I do agree. They need to have a voice. They have been conditioned over the years that, if they speak up, especially the men at the lower level, so these team guys, because they're enlisted, that if they say anything against the command, that will come back on them. And so that's really a shame because that's the way we've built. That's, that's the way the military is structured. The command holds the greatest weight. And there's a lot of great commanders. But if you're speaking up against a bad commander, that bad commander will make sure to bring it back on you. Um, so in this situation, the commander who ordered the mission, um, are they really going to be very vocal and fight back against him? And that was another reason with this book. I was like, I'm the only one who can do this and not have it affect me. So you know, you know, me
1: retribution is, is tough. My only comment to these, um, people who served with your husband is, Document it in writing, at least, you know, I, am a person who researched all the founding fathers, read all the letters of their wives and their journals, uh, because at some point their story needs to be heard and, and, and it needs to be told. And, uh, to document, you know, I, I had a, a good friend who was Reagan's personal advisor and, uh, I was able to do an interview and he asked me not to put the interview out until after he passed away. He was 82 because there was things in government that he saw and he passed away a few months ago. So we're editing it and I, I'm trying to respect his wishes.
2: What but, was his name?
1: Uh, Ron man.
2: Oh, okay. Huh. I'll have to listen to that.
1: So, uh, Ron man was an amazing person. He helped, uh, install over 300 members of, uh, president Reagan's, um, cabinet he was on the uh, bicentennial of the constitution he collected you know um, materials uh, on constitutional memorabilia uh, just one of the most amazing most well-read people but he worked with the CIA and finally he had to leave government and retire to Idaho because they were telling him if he spoke up in Washington or tried to clean up the corruption in Washington that did harm his family so he he fled wow. to Idaho and and lived a quiet life uh remainder of his life. But uh it's 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 one of these things. They put the fear into these men. What is your hopes that this book is going to resonate with the people? What what's the most you want from this book?
2: Um change. I, I what I'm actually working on right now is um I'm working with a few people other um like lobbyists and um gold stars to hopefully see to it that we can change, maybe put in some legislation to change the way investigations are done. So, you know, for instance, AFRICOM can't investigate AFRICOM because, you know, basically initially it was a three-star command that started up the investigation into the incident of its own people. And then AFRICOM stepped in being a four-star command and Shut down the investigation, and started it up because they didn't want their own people um, or their own command to be in, in basically in trouble. So they ran the investigation and blamed, you know, the USASAC people. So um, that's, I would like to change that. And I'm looking at potentially starting. Um, an organization where we can give soldiers a voice. So when there are things going on and they don't want retribution, they can contact us and we can start working on legislation or seeing what we can do to help things change um, from outside the military.
1: Yeah. Well, I want you to know this. I'm actually, this is one of the last shows I'm, I'm actually doing for a little bit because I filed and I'm running for us Congress here in the state of Utah. Oh, wow. Uh, because I want change. And one of the hard things it's been is, you know, if you don't have enough money, you can't run. So I have designated enough money to match my opponent um, in the race. So I, I am trying to replace. If I get to Congress, I would be happy to meet with you and fight for this change. Uh, because I'm, I'm a person who can't be owned. I'm a person who can't be threatened. Uh, sort of like you. Um, and I'm a person who believes in truth and I will always be a person that you could talk to in Congress if I win.
2: Thank you. That's, that's amazing. And good luck. That's so great.
1: Thanks. It's, it's a tough uh, thing. So Michelle michelleblacksacrifice.com, uh, the book is sacrifice a gold star widow's fight for the truth. Um, I wish we had more time. Anytime you have anybody who wants to come on my show, please reach out and contact me. Um, we can have these conversations about any topic you want. So anything that's out there, I'll do. And, you know, I have a pretty large audience. So uh, we'll, we'll do what we can for you. Um, thanks so much, folks, for listening to the America Out Loud Network. How you can help is share this, share this on Facebook, share this show. Once it hits podcast form, share this on your Twitter, share it on your telegraph, whatever media you have, true social with Trump. Share this link so people can hear this story and uh, sit tight for a minute. I want to talk to you and uh, folks take care and see you next time.